Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, thanks to Glenn. Thanks to everybody who has taken part this morning. Uh, what, what is it with the number seven? Last week, seven sneezes and a young son comes back to life. This week, seven dips in a river and a military commander is healed of a hideous skin disease. Today is kind of part of our Game of Thrones series. We come to one of the best known and most popular stories in all of Second Kings, and that is the healing of Naaman at the River Jordan. But I wonder how many of us are familiar with the second part of that story. The second half of 2 Kings 5. Where someone who we have met before moves in the opposite direction. So Naaman moves from leprosy to well-being. This other person moves from well-being to leprosy. How many people here would say they know the second part of that story? Okay, a few. I'll be honest, before this week I didn't. I could have told you something about the leper at the start of this chapter, Naaman, but I couldn't have told you anything about the leper at the end. Nor did I realize or fully appreciate how even more fascinating part one becomes in light of part two. Two. And so, as we almost always do at Windsor, please stand for the public reading of God's constantly surprising word. This is 2 Kings 5. Again, don't have the words on screen, so if you're near someone who has a copy, great. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Naaman was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only may my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Well, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. And the letter that he took to the king of Israel read this. With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman so you may cure him of his leprosy. Well, as soon As the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send me someone to be cured of leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? Well, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent this message to him. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me. And he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Well, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought 
he would have come out to me. And he would have stood, and he would have called in the name of the Lord as God, and waved his hand over the spot and cured me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the rivers and waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Well, Naaman's servants went to him and said, Listen, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young man. Well, then Naaman and all his attendants went back to Elisha and stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, Elisha refused. If you will not say to Naaman, then please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. Well, after Naaman traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God said to himself, my master was far too easy on naming this Armenian or Aramean by not accepting him or from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and I will get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. But when Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from his chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing and he gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. Well, when Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in his house and he sent the men away and left. And when he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Nowhere. Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female servants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Grab a seat. So, so, an Israelite who is an insider, and this is really important, Israelite who is an insider, and he's not just any Israelite, he is Elisha's servant, Gehazi, who if you were here last week in chapter four, had just been part of and had witnessed an incredible, literal, life-altering miracle of God. That guy ends up with leprosy, and ends up condemned as a result of some really poor choices. 
Whereas a Gentile, an outsider, ends up healed and restored as a result of the amazing grace of God that we've just been singing about. You see, we limit God or think we've got him sussed at our peril. I love this whole story. This is a chapter packed with surprises. And I'm just gonna take you through some of the surprises in this chapter. And the very first one comes at the beginning in verse one, where we read that God gives victory. And many of you will have picked this up. God gives victory not to the king of Israel, but God gives victory to the king of Aram, who is the enemy of Israel. And he does it through a guy called Naaman, who is a highly thought of and respected commander in the Syrian army. Now, before we get on to the next detail about this army officer, about his physical condition and problem, the question is this, why would God give victory to Syria over Israel? Why? Why would God do that? Well, for a start, let's be really clear that God is sovereign over all nations and all people, and he can do what he likes. But in addition, let's also remember that when God's people choose to do their own thing, when God's people choose to go their own way, turn to other gods, compromise their worship, blatantly rebel, then judgment and punishment is inevitable. And how God chooses to express it through enemy armies, for example, is his prerogative. You see, ultimately, if you fast forward a number of years, Israel finds itself where? In what? Where does Israel find itself in a number of years in Babylon? In what? In exile. Or God sent Israel into exile because of the people's continued idolatry, rebellion, and compromised worship. And then here's what Isaiah, who was one of the many prophets that God sent to try to speak some sense into the people's lives. Here's what Isaiah wrote or said on one occasion. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned, and get this, and Isaiah had been talking about how God had rescued the people of God from slavery, how he had brought them to the promised land, and he says that they rebelled, they grieved his Holy Spirit, and what happens? God turned and became their enemy, and God himself fought against them, See, there are grave and serious consequences for the people of God whenever they forget their God, whenever they forget what he has done for them, or whenever, and this is an entire scriptural point of view, whenever they grieve the Holy Spirit. And as the second part of this story reveals, there are also grave consequences for individuals who do likewise. This is a solemn chapter, church. And so here in 2 Kings 5, God gives victory to the king of Aram, and he does it through Naaman. That's the first surprise. Well, the second surprise is found in verses 2 and 3. Have a look at these, where we discover and realize that the vital link in this story is an unnamed servant girl. Do you know, if it hadn't been for her, Naaman would never have been healed. 
She is the one who suggests where Naaman should go to be cured. And when you think about it, this is an incredible and supreme act of grace. Because remember, she had been captured by Naaman's people, by the raiders of Aram. She was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to serve Naaman's wife. But rather than do nothing or say nothing or even take pleasure in her captive's, captor's dreadful and terminal skin condition, what does she do? She signposts him to where he can find help and healing. That's grace. When someone shows love to another who is very different and doesn't deserve it, that's grace. And you could almost argue that this is also an example of someone loving their enemy and blessing those who have effectively persecuted them long before it ever was a thing. This young unnamed girl shows grace. Says, listen, I know where you can go to be cured. She's another one of those unsung heroes of Scripture. An ordinary person, unknown by most people, who is powerfully used by God to accomplish his purposes and make a difference in the life of another human being. Thank God for ordinary people. Well, you move on. Naaman's wife tells her sick husband what the young girl said. And Naaman goes and tells his master, the king of Aram. And then we come to surprise number three. A total misunderstanding of the good news. Sounds familiar. The young girl had said, listen, to be cured, Naaman needs to go and see the prophet who is in Samaria. But here's how this was interpreted, if you look at this. How was it interpreted? Naaman needs to go to see the king of Israel in order to be cured. And so Aram or the king of Aram, sends a letter to the king of Israel with a whole bunch of gifts and says, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you, you king of Israel, will cure him of his leprosy. Well, that was, that was not the message articulated by the young girl. The king was not the true source of help and healing. And so no wonder, and I think this is great, no wonder whenever the king of Israel reads this letter and reads that he is expected to cure leprosy, he tears his robes, he asks lots of questions, and he becomes paranoid. See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? Another misunderstanding. And we have no idea why there is this complete misunderstanding or breakdown. It is surprising, but maybe men of power only like to deal with men of power, irrespective of what they're told. Anyway, enter Elisha into the story. So word filters back to the prophet that the king of Israel's ripping up his wardrobe. And so he inquires, what are you doing? Why are you ripping your robes? Well, clearly someone explains to Elisha the reason. And so Elisha says, listen, send Naaman to me. And then we've got this whole bunch of surprises. So the first one is that whenever Naaman appears at Elisha's house, Elisha sends a messenger to speak to him. He doesn't bother going to the door himself. Secondly, there is the surprising message that the messenger delivers. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and you'll be healed. Like, what's that all about? 
And then the third surprise is Naaman refuses to do the very thing that's going to heal him. He doesn't like the sound of what he needs to do. He wanted the prophet to come out and kind of wave his hand over his skin and magically heal him. Or if he has to do something, he wants to call the shots. I want to wash in a different river. And so what does he do? He turns off and walks away in a rage. He wants to be healed, but he doesn't want to be healed like that. Not in those terms. He wants to be healed in his own way. And again, I don't want to make too big deal of this, but I reckon that mindset still prevails. Do you know many people today say, yeah, do you know, of course I want to be saved. Of course I I want to live forever. In the presence of God. Of course I do. But you know what? Not like that. Not, not in those terms, not in that way. Well, thankfully for, for Naaman, his servants step in and they go after him and they make the point that say, listen, if, see if the prophet had suggested that you had to do something great, then you'd have done it. Which actually reveals that the issue at stake is pride. Because you see, washing seven times in the Jordan was far too humbling Pride is always the biggest stumbling block. It's why pride is always the deadliest sin to address and confess. Anyway, Naaman accepts that, okay, servants, you've got a point. You're right. And so what does Naaman do? He humbles himself. And he does what the prophet suggested. He expresses obedience and instantly he is healed and restored and he's cleansed. Thank God for people in our lives who help us to see sense. And then Naaman goes and he stands in front of Elisha and he declares there is no God in all the world except in Israel. This is a dramatic confession of faith in Yahweh. This is another one of those great Gentile conversion accounts in the Old Testament, like Rahab's, or like Ruth's, or like the sailors and the Ninevites and Jonah, where Naaman, like all of them, comes to a place of believing in the Lord. There is no God, Elisha, I know that now, there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And then he backs up his confession with a bunch of commitments. There's kind of fruit following his conversion. And so first off, he tries to give Elisha a gift as an expression of gratitude. And okay, Elisha refuses the gift, but it's still a good thing for Naaman to have offered a gift, a generous thing. Secondly, and and, and this is brilliant, I know different people interpret this differently, but secondly, he he asks Elisha, listen, can I take home some dirt from Israel to build an altar because you see from now on I'm only going to make sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord and to no other gods. It's brilliant. And then finally, and I love it, he asks for forgiveness up front. You ever do that? He asks for forgiveness up front for those times whenever he has to bow down to another God. Now this is going to send our heads spinning, Okay. But he asks for forgiveness up front for those times whenever he has to bow down to another god called Rimon. And the only reason, he says, you know, the only reason I'm going to have to bow down is because of my master. Because I, or my master, sorry, will be leaning on me. 
I have to go to temple worship with my master and he will be leaning on or I'll be leaning on him. And you see, when he goes down, I'm going to have to bow down. And so end of verse 18, he says, can I have forgiveness for that ahead of time? See, this is brilliant. Naaman is a new man. And if we're in any doubt, and I know as I say, different people have interpreted this differently, but if we're in any doubt, look at Elisha's response to him in verse 19. After he says all this, he says, Naaman, go in peace. Go in peace. What a story. A Gentile military commander is healed and transformed by the amazing grace of God. Here is another reminder. There is a, there's no such thing as a no-go area for the grace of God. It can reach into the enemy camp and change the life of an opponent of God's people. Amazing grace in unexpected places, in unexpected lives. He is God of the nations. And then God in his grace involves others in his mission, like unnamed servants and godly prophets. This is a great story, but the story isn't over. There's a second part. There's the part they don't tell you in Sunday school. There's the less known part. There's the disturbing part. And so re-enter Gehazi, Elisha's servant, the good guy, the insider, the person who's part of the people of God, the one who's recently witnessed all those miracles. A husband and wife are able to have a child when humanly speaking it was impossible. Then there's the resurrection of that same child after he had tragically died. This guy's faith must have been pretty solid. And so what you read next is shocking. Or at best it's disappointing. You see, Gehazi thinks, you know, Elisha's been far too lenient. He's missed a trick. And so he decides to go after Naaman to get some of the reward that Elisha had declined. And when he catches up with Naaman, he tells a blatant lie. He claims that his master sent him. No, he didn't. But he says, listen, my master has sent me. And then he makes up some story to justify his request. And so greed has taken a grip. And Naaman agrees. And Naaman says, of course I'll give you something. And in fact, I'm going to give you far more than you've asked for. Such was Naaman's newfound generosity. And then we read that Gehazi takes it, but what does he do? He stashes it in his house before he goes back and stands in front of Elisha. Here's the second person in the story standing in front of the prophet of God. And as Gehazi stands in front of Elisha, Elisha smells a rat. Because as it turns out, he knows exactly what has happened. You see, prophets have a habit of doing that. But he asks Gehazi a question. It's a simple question. It's a straight question. He says, where have you been? And Gehazi then lies to Elisha's face. Your servant didn't go anywhere. Must have broken Elisha's heart. Must have broken God's heart. But you see, this is where it this is where it gets awkward. You see, you can't mess with God. You can't fool God. You can't pretend to be something or someone you're not. Greed is another deadly sin. 
And so it became a problem in Gehazi's heart and in his life. And as a result, there were massive consequences. Yes, God is a God of amazing grace. But God is also a God of judgment. And we tend to shy away from this aspect of his character. And Elisha pronounces God's strict and awful judgment on Gehazi, the one who should have known better. And so the very last verse in the story reads this. Naaman's leprosy, Gehazi's going to cling to you. And then this bit here that messes with our heads. And to your descendants forever. And so Gehazi goes away from Elisha's presence and his skin is leprous and it has become his way to snow. There's the end of the story. There's the proper end of the story. There's the part of this famous narrative that doesn't often get told. The healing of Naaman is such, Naaman the Gentile, it's such a feel-good, grace-filled story. Whereas the condemning of Gehazi, the person we all thought was a faithful servant of the prophet of God, that's an uncomfortable, unsettling, unnerving dimension of the story. But you know what it also reveals? It reveals an unsettling, unnerving, uncomfortable, disturbing aspect of God's character. But you see, it's imperative that I, that I stand here and tell both parts of the story. It's vital I don't reduce God's character or diminish his awesome holiness. He is a God of amazing grace who reaches out to unlikely people and heals and restores broken lives, but he's also a God of judgment who takes sin seriously even in the lives of those who have experienced his amazing grace. And so 2 Kings 5 is a tale of two deep reversals. One person heads home healed and rejoicing. The other person heads home to face the desperate consequences of his rebellious and godless choices. And so in Matthew's gospel, Jesus makes this startling statement. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name we drove out demons. And in your name we performed many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's actually the controversial saying of Jesus that we're going to look at tonight. But it seems to me that Gehazi is an Old Testament example of someone who might just fall into this category. Though that category of the type of person we thought was a servant of the Lord, who others thought was a servant of the Lord, but in reality was still a slave to sin and a slave to self. And although you can lie to others and you can try and dupe and deceive others, you can't fool God because the judge of all the earth who one day will judge the living and the dead, that judge will one day do right. And so here's the takeaway. Celebrate the grace of God that has reached for people like Naaman and people like you and me, but never cheapen the grace of God by thinking it's a license to live as you please. May we never, ever, cheapen the grace of God 
look for and learn from the surprises in God's word. And we never did sort out why seven's such a number.